0: the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do
1: your best I've been listening to your show on the
0: radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi Victoria, Stand the man. man Hello
1: Oh don't get up It's only me
0: Welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420, 3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six.
1: 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3EE, the breeze, 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420,
0: 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today, we chat with a man who will shortly celebrate 50 years in radio and is still going strong. Tim Webster anchored TV news bulletins, reported on sport, survived the rigors of talkback radio hosting, and of course, was one of the best-known music jocks, especially in the Sydney market through the 70s and 80s, but they're still doing it now. Hey, Tim Webster. Welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
0: Now, Tim, you're a New South Wales boy through and through and a product of Scotch College in Sydney. How was Tim Webster the student and in what areas do you think you excelled in?
1: Mate, I was uh, not too bad. Well, like I say pretty good at English and history. Absolutely sucked at math and science. Uh, I could never figure out why you needed to know what uh, all of that stuff was. You know, what was that? Algebra and algebra, all that stuff. Never got it. But English and history, yeah, loved it and was pretty good.
0: Now, many of our previous guests burst out of those school gates and into their first on-air gig in a country radio station. But that wasn't quite you, Tim. In fact, you had a few years looking at a different side of the media.
1: Yeah, I did. I, uh, my first job out of school was uh, at the Eastern Suburbs Lime Cement Store. Uh, Johnny Wright, who I understand is still alive and in his 90s and a lovely man. And I was going to get into advertising. Uh, and in fact, I did. So I was his, if you like, very young advertising manager then I got a job at what was then Jackson Wayne became Leo Burnett a very famous advertising agency and I was in advertising for oh the best part of two and a half maybe years and then uh the love of radio
0: kicked in now during that time what on air guys were you tuning into
1: oh um Ward Austin probably first uh I was a bit early for the good guys on 2SM Mike Walsh and uh, all of those guys um but, you know, I'm a mid-teenager in the mid-60s and I just loved Pally. I thought he was great on TUW. But just a quick story about that. Now, when I eventually got into radio, I understood what I said to my advertising manager. When I was at Leo Burnett, Jackson Wayne, I said to my – and I was a young media buyer, so I was buying advertising. And I said to my boss, I said, listen, um, you know, you're spending a lot of money on – And I think Amco Jeans was one of the clients then. And AMP had a very young focus. And I said, you're spending your money on 2UW. I said, you know, all the people my age are listening to to 2SM. So this is 1969 into 1970. And she said, really? Uh, I said, yeah. She said, you're sure you're right? I said, well, you know, if I'm wrong, uh, you know, (laughs) I'll probably get fired. But uh, we transferred what was then a fair amount of money onto Amco Jeans and AMP. And uh, I was right because from late 69 and into 1972, SM took off. And then uh, I think Pally had gone. I think he'd gone to America. And I listened to Torvi, John Torv, one of the, the great voices of our industry
0: ever. Yes, absolutely. Now, speaking of voices, did you have any voice training prior to going to 2BS in Bathurst? No, there wasn't.
1: Uh, I was recommended to go to the great Eric Wright, uh, and uh, I organised to do it, I think, but never got there because I ended up with the job in Bathurst uh, before that happened. So official voice training? No, never.
0: Now, most jocks remember their first honour appointment most fondly. What are some of those lasting memories that you have regarding your time in Bathurst?
1: <laughs> well, it's actually very funny, mate. I, I arrived a boy from Bondi uh, at Bathurst uh, on the train, late at night, and uh, I turned up, well, when I say late at night, it wasn't that late, but remember, it's Baptist. It was about 10 o'clock, I think, Um, and I couldn't raise anybody, and I eventually did, Uh, and I think uh, Bobby Upfold, who was the tech then, uh, came, and I actually, because they hadn't, somebody misunderstood when I was coming, and they had a camping exhibition in the front of 2BS. Now, in those days, uh, the studio was up near the the street, and the camping exhibition was, was in the window and ended up sleeping in that uh my first night in bathurst and then uh, off i went on uh, ronnie camplin's great station
0: so moving on from bathurst there was time spent in muswell brook and two N X in newcastle both excellent breeding grounds where many of the great names in australian broadcasting especially in sydney cut their radio teeth so who were some of the jocks who you shared the roster with at those two places
1: well, 2 M in Musselbrook, Barry Chapman, who went on to become one of the great programmers. Barry was there with me. Uh, at 2NX, well, there's a, you know, a guy called Andy Simpson who's an absolute legend in Newcastle. So that was when I got there early. But I went back to 2NX in the late 70s uh, after, you know, mishaps at 87.2GB and all of that drama. Oh, and worked with Gary Soprane uh, and Jim Pike uh, with Hans Torv. Uh, some of the great names, you're right, came out of Newcastle. Peter Meehan was at 2KO when I was there. Um, the great Matt Tapp, Pat Barton. I um, mean, some really terrific names in Newcastle. Newcastle's a great breeding ground and a great place to stay. I don't think Andy Simpson ever left uh, Newcastle, but I had a ball in Newcastle, and uh, to my two eldest sons were born there, and I go back uh, as often as I can. I love the place. It's great.
0: Now, of course, another claim to fame of the stations was that they were part of the Catholic Broadcasting Company. Now, from an on-air point of view, was there ever any feeling that a group as powerful as the Catholic Church was in the background looking over your shoulder or exerting any pressure at all?
1: No. uh, We always heard about uh, the influence the Cardinal had, but I think uh, when Muir took it over, Rod Muir took it over, uh, I think they pretty much let him have uh, a free reign. But uh, things like... uh, Lola by the Kinks, uh, I think, was frowned upon. But you know, as you remember, not for not for the connotation of who Lola was, but for the fact that there was advertising. And Ray Davies had to change it from uh, (laughs) Coca Cola to Cherry Cola. But look, I can't remember uh, any direct influence or any songs not being played because of the influence of the Catholic Church. And I think, mate, that's because SM was so successful. Uh, You know, from when I was there, and I was there. Uh, in 1974 into 75. And then I went down to 3XY in Melbourne and came back with Ronnie Sparks um, in 70, whatever that was, into 75, early 76. So, no, I, no, I can't remember any direct influence at all.
0: Summer, summer, summer. So the first major city appointment was with the all-powerful, all-conquering, star-studded 2SM in Sydney. Now, how did that appointment come about, and what was it like being part of such an influential station?
1: Well, you know, I um, I was in Newcastle, and the program director in Newcastle at the time was, was Mike Webb, uh, and uh, Webb is still a, a very good mate of mine. And I got the offer to go to Sydney, and he said, well, mate, grab it with both hands, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, There was a little bit of controversy. I I, I didn't get on with uh, Mike Drayson. I get on with him now. He's a mate now, but uh, we sort of butted heads back in those days. And that's why I ended up going to 3XY in Melbourne uh, with Ron E. Sparks, the legend himself. And uh, Ronnie took me down there to get me away from Sydney. I eventually came back with Ronnie and Michael went back to Melbourne. So uh, in those days, you know, lots of young jocks, mate, with big egos. And thought they knew better. And uh, Rod had a plan to you know, get some of the great guys. I don't know why uh, to take them off the air and make them programmers. I, I guess he was trying to do them a favor, but you know, guys like Sparksy never should have been off the air. Sparksy went on to program, of course, and program pretty successfully in a couple of places, but uh, one of the great jocks and, uh, and always will be. And I think Michael Drayson uh, wasn't on the air nearly long enough because he was one of the great jocks too.
0: So is it fair to say that much of the success of the station was due to the leadership of Rod Muir and his innovation of the high-rotation more music format?
1: Oh, very much so. You know, uh, any jock who was there at the time will tell you about the the red phone. Uh, when it rang, you knew it was Muir because he was the only one that had the number. And I've got a quick story about that. I was doing Drive at the time when I came back to SM with Sparksy and uh, oh, it was about, I don't know, ne- ne- I was nearly finished, I think. Uh, probably six o'clock-ish, and the red phone rang. I got, oh, God, what does he, what's he want? And all he said was, mate, if you're going to leave gaps that big, I can sell them, and he slammed the phone down. Well, I think I might have left a millisecond in between the end of the ad break and the first record. That's how influential he was. Uh, he was always listening, always wanted to know about the station, and he also had uh, guys like the great and, and dearly departed John Burnley uh, as programmers. It was just made sure that that ticked along. And it ticked along for many, many years to SM, of course, until FM came along. And then, you know, it didn't collapse, uh, but it all changed then, as you know.
0: Now, as we said, SM boasted an incredible roster of jocks, including one we haven't really mentioned on Pilots before – and that is, of course, the great Laurie Bennett. Got to put a spell on you. It's Redbone and a witch queen of New Orleans at 126 with Laurie Bennett here at 2SM. So what do you remember about Lobo? Mate, I loved Lobo. But
1: uh, as everyone that knew Lobo knew, he, uh, he probably was a little bit too fond of the booze. And um, I knew him both at 2SM and then briefly uh, when he was at Today FM, but only very briefly. But, um, you know, lo- um, I used to go over. I did uh, nights briefly, or midnight to dawn, I think only for a little while and uh, Foster's Hotel, the old two in jocks would remember on the corner there near the town hall on the Clarence Street corner. Uh, you know, I'd go over there and Lobo, I'd be there having a couple of beers at, at that hour of the night and sometimes in the early hours of the morning. But one of the great jocks, Laurie, he really was and uh, could have been, you know, even had more longevity if he didn't have that uh, problem with the booze that he did have. And uh, it's sad, but uh, you know, loved. Like, we all loved Laurie. He was great.
0: So you move on from 2SM to 2JJ. Was that from the station's inception, or were they up and running when you arrived?
1: No, they're up and running, but it hadn't been up and running for long. Uh, They were the days of uh, Marius Webb when he was uh, programming uh, double J. And uh, I think Holger was there then. Holger Brockman had come across as well. But, mate, I was only there very briefly because I had that falling out uh, with Michael, and and I think Sparksy, uh, they wanted Sparksy to go back on the air, uh, so he did. And I was there very briefly before I went to what was the ill-fated experiment of 87 2 GB. But my story about that was, I mean, I've come from that, as you mentioned, the tight and bright 40 records in a box uh, format. Uh, and I said to Marius, I think when I got there, I said, well, what's the format, mate? What do I do? He said, well, you know, there's the record library. He said, just make sure that uh, the guy that w- was on before you uh, hasn't played what you want to play and away you go. So I mean, for a jock, that was great. But in the end, you know, it was not the lack of discipline. Uh, I think I probably needed, uh, at that stage of my broadcasting career, a bit more structure than uh, than I got out of Double J.
0: So how confident was the station at the time that they could lure a fair percentage of their target audience away from the big guns?
1: Yeah, they were. And, uh, you know, remember, that's the, the precursor to FM, which was, what, uh, four years later. And uh, at 2GB, by the way, I mean, we played the sort of music there. That was too much for the, for the old people who ran 2GB. They couldn't cope with what we were doing there. And they went back to a talk format. And that was only six months too. But, you know, we were playing, you know, Linda Ronstadt, Van Morrison, the Eagles, Doobie Brothers, uh, all of that music that eventually became a staple of FM. And we were playing it four years earlier than them. So it was innovative in a way, but uh, made, I think, probably ill-timed.
0: Now, the move on the horizon, and this time it was to 2GB, where you worked with another one of those larger-than-life characters in Malcolm T. Elliott.
1: Yes, I did with Malcolm. Uh, That was Paul Thompson, of course, and a lovely bloke called Vince Lovegrove uh, and Barry Bissell. I mean, all of those legends of the industry. But Malcolm, uh, one of the, the greatest talents in the history of the business, I think, but Malcolm's problem or one of Malcolm's problem was the fact that he really could be and I don't think I'm telling stories out of school a bit hard to deal with Uh, at one stage he threatened to move his whole uh, office into the lift because they hadn't given him a desk or a phone or something uh, A GB but oh look he was a character and I got on great with him I mean he was funny he was fun uh, but gee he was volatile but uh, what a talent Malcolm was he mentioned a
0: great name there. Now, there were moves back to Newcastle and to UW. However, the FM revolution was slowly taking shape, with Triple M in Sydney leading the charge. Now, you were part of the original roster, with names such as Pete Rudder, Tony Hartney, Bob Hughes, etc. How exciting was it to be introducing a whole new concept of broadcasting to a radio audience? And what were some of the earlier challenges from your point of view?
1: Oh, mate, it was so very exciting, I I can't tell you. I remember a sitting... Uh, on the boardroom floor, and I don't think there was the famous boardroom that got cut in half with the chainsaw then. I don't think that was there. Uh, And we were drinking, you know, VB and eating pizza and getting ready. And I remember the techs sending the signal up the stick and sending so much power. We were getting calls from Coffs Harbour and people saying, wow, what is this? Um, And we all got to turn Uh, To have a test, if you like, before we actually switch the thing on for real. And Muir went on the air, and I forget what he played. And and I said, well, he said, yeah, you play anything, doesn't matter what you play. And uh, I'll remember it forever. I played uh, Eric Clapton's Blues Power off a Live in Japan album, and Away We Went. And it's so exciting, mate, to just hear all of that music we'd all loved for all of those years in such a crystal clear stereo. And the challenge was, I suppose, uh, to get people to to know that we were there and uh, and appreciate what we were doing. And uh, I wasn't there very long, to be honest with you. I, you're right. Uh, you Pete Rudder, who's still a mate, Tony Hartney. I love Tony. He's back in, in WA. Peter Sinclair, who was our music director, and uh, a lovely fellow called Noel Miller. And Bob, uh, again, another of our dear departed friends from the industry, mate. We've lost too many. I love Bobby and used to catch up with him for a coffee very often. Uh, and we'd reminisce about that and... God, when I think it's 42 years ago, I can almost not believe it, but uh, so very exciting, mate, really was.
0: Now, it's widely acknowledged that Eon FM in Melbourne took a while to establish a sound and a playlist that would win a sizable audience from the AMers. How did Triple M fare in this regard?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think Peter and Cherie uh, and, and Rod uh, tweaked the music a little bit uh, at the time because, uh, yeah, look... Uh, Coming across from uh, SM, which was our main uh, opposition at the time, and I think Barry Chapman would have been programming SM at the time, uh, proved a little bit difficult. But then, you know, when they really hit their straps and Doug Mulray came, well, off it went, and then there was no stopping FM. But in the early stages, and I was only there for, I think, maybe six or eight months, a little bit more, I went to television in early 1981, and, um, Uh, But it was still building and building and building. And uh, I suppose um, it was a matter of wondering what you should play, how adventurous you should be, uh, as we probably were at 2GB in in 1976. Now, remember, a lot of that music hadn't been heard on commercial radio, AM radio, for a very long time. I mean, Barry tried uh, doing album music on 2SM, and I don't think that worked for him very well. So, uh, I mean, Muir, Cherie, uh, all of those guys really knew what they were doing. And when, in the end, when they fine-tuned it, uh, I mean, it was just unstoppable. See, floating soft and easy, you and me.
0: Let's find a sheltered spot beneath the tree Of course, the other main player in the Sydney marketplace was, of course, Today FM, where you eventually crossed over in the 80s. How or why did that move come about?
1: Well, I'd, I'd gone to television and uh, started uh, reading news on Good Morning Australia. And, uh, I, and I have to say, when I went to uh, television, uh, Muir said to me, oh, mate, you'd be mad if you didn't do that. That's a national television program. Uh, we'll miss you. And, you know, if it doesn't work out for you, please give me a ring and we'll see if we can fit you back in. But that never happened, but then Cherie went to to Today FM and she rang me and she said, "Oh, why don't you come over?" I said, "Well, you know, sweetie, how am I going to do that?" I mean, we told told she "Well, you know, we're uh, we're automating, and that original automated gear was um, well, it could be a bit problematic. I mean, you had big reel-to-reel tapes that you put time calls on with a pulse, and this mad, maniacal <laughs> cart machine thing that ran around behind the card decks and picked them out and put them in machines and and you automated the whole lot, but in the end, um, it fit in with what I was doing, and I did do uh, live uh, mornings, and then uh, I ended up doing brekkie for a little while, and a very successful program called Yesterday's Songs, which I did uh, early Sunday morning, six till ten a.m., and that was the sort of music, you know, sixties and seventies that uh, made them actually playing now on uh, Classic kids 2CH. So, and that was massively successful show that one because people all of a sudden. Uh, We're hearing all of those great old 60s songs in stereo. It's great.
0: Now, diversification and longevity in the radio business go hand in hand in many cases. And for you, it was sport and also holding down a position of permanent fill-in for the great John Laws on 2UE. Now, in that 2UE position, how did you compare your style to the great man? And did you feel an obligation to imitate him to appeal to the audience that he'd built up?
1: Uh, not imitate him, but I certainly did the program the way Lawsy did it. I did a uh, an intro like he would have done. But, you know, interestingly, um, as soon as I came over there, and I came over from 2GB, I mean, I've got to thank Chris Smith, who was programming 2GB at the time, for asking me to come over uh, and fill in for Hadley, for Ray, uh, when he went away to the Athens Olympics. And uh, that was really when I came back to radio on any full-time basis. I'd been dabbling around in the in the 80s and, and 90s well not in the 80s in the 80s i did quite a bit uh, in the 80s in the 90s not so much so i thank him for it and then i was asked to come to ue to be lawsy's permanent replacement and uh, virtually the day i arrived he got very ill and uh, was away for a couple of months so uh, i had a, a long run at it and uh, uh, to blow my own trumpet a bit I, we, we rated really well in that period and uh I remember him saying in the newspaper, you look at Timmy go, he's uh, actually rated better than me, but not for long. Uh, As soon as he came back, uh, Lorsi shot up in the ratings again at that period in time. But uh, it wasn't long, as you know, before uh, 2GB went uh, berserk in the ratings with, uh, with Jones and the aforementioned Raymond.
0: Okay, a couple of quick questions. You've covered some of the great sporting events throughout your career. Which one stands out as the most exciting to be involved in?
1: Oh, the US Open uh, golf that uh, we covered on Channel 10 uh, in the 2000s because Tiger was playing. No, I, I don't think I've ever heard anything like it because we got to the broadcast center and uh, jumped in one of those golf cart things. and We went out to the golf course, have a look around and, and suss it all out. And we just kept hearing this almighty cheer. And I said to the guy in the golf cart, I said, what's that? He said, well, whenever you hear that head out there, that's where Tiger will be. And I went, whoa, you know, Tiger didn't win that US Open, but uh, uh, just to be there with him and I went around. Peter Lonard, the great Australian golfer, was playing in that uh, US Open as well. That's when he was on the US Tour and and playing really well. And uh, to be there at that golf tournament was just absolutely tremendous. But, mate, I, you know, covered... Uh, I think about 12 or 13 Melbourne Cups and golf tournaments here. Uh, but uh, covering that US Open in America, yeah, that was an experience and a half.
0: Now, to be host of Sports Tonight on television for 11 years, do you actually need to excel in a sport yourself? And if so, what was it? Uh, I
1: don't think I excelled in any sport, really. I, I love rugby league. I, I started playing uh, in the when it was uh, decided by weight, uh, not by age, in the under five stone sevens, and I probably was five or six. So I love rugby league. Look, I was a reasonable player. I got uh, asked to, to try out for Jersey Flegg, uh, but I was too old by a couple of months and couldn't uh, try out. And then uh, I actually got quite badly injured and uh, didn't play for a whole year and then got into radio. I played uh, rugby league in Bathurst and I played in Musselbrook and I ruined my knee uh, in Musselbrook and, and never played again. But oh, mate, I was a reasonable golfer. Uh, reasonable, mid-teens handicapper, but as far as excel in a particular sport, no. uh, I mean, I just love sport, particularly rugby league and golf, for that matter.
0: Okay, time to give away a couple of news anchor's secrets. Do you ever wear shorts and thongs under the desk when you're presenting the news?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure Billy Woods won't mind me telling you this, but uh, for a G up, I think it was for a Christmas party, one of those goof tapes, Uh, We put Billy in in fishnet stockings and high heels and took a shot of that from under the desk. (laughs) Well, and there's actually a very famous shot of me. You've just reminded me. And it was terribly, terribly funny. But uh, our news director didn't think so at the time. Oh, yeah, it could sometimes, with all the lights, get very hot in the studio. So this night, reading news with Kate uh, Lee um, and... uh, was I doing sport? No, I was reading news with Kate Lee and I think Graham McNeese and my mate the Shadow was doing sport. And the director decided he'd take this long pull-out shot uh, at the end of the news. Uh, and we thought we were off camera, but we weren't. And I stood up and had the daggiest pair of paint-stained Eastern Suburbs football shorts you've ever seen on. And uh, I think there was, a, there was a goof tape of that for many years. If it's still around, I don't know. But we thought it was funny. The boss didn't.
0: Okay, total change of tact. What was the most memorable thing about the 2003 Logie Awards?
1: Well, the most memorable thing about that was, uh, God, if it it had bitten Sandra Sully, uh, I think uh, Steve Irwin would have been in more trouble. Well, Eddie Maguire, for those who don't know, and Steve Irwin, the late and great, uh, did this little gag. And Eddie at the lectern brought out like one of those silly rubber snakes. And Steve Owen said something like, oh, that's not a snake. This is a snake. And he pulled out this, I don't know, three or four metre. But that's what it seemed like to me. Uh, I think it was a diamond pipe. And he lost control of it. And uh, it flicked off the stage. And, yeah, it bit me on the leg, uh, on the thigh. And, and Sandra, Sully, was sitting next to me. I God. In a lovely skirt, I thought if it had bitten her, we'd be in trouble. But mate, all I can tell you about that was, um, you know, Steve and Channel Nine apologised profusely, and it was all good. But I had a fairly significant bruise, and after, well, you know, a few Crown Lagers after the award ceremony at the drinks afterwards, I, I did uh, show a few people my bruise, which I probably shouldn't have. But hey, it was the logies, and we used to do that then. <laughs> probably <laughs> frowned on now.
0: Yeah, I think they refer to that these days as Logie's folklore there, Tim. Hey, listen, we haven't actually touched on uh, 2CH and some of the great work you're doing there at the moment, and you started off there with some of the best in the business under the guidance of Cherie Romaro and working next to one of the absolute legends of the business in Bob Rogers. What can you tell us about Cherie and about Bob?
1: Yeah, Bob was so supportive, mate. He really was um, when I arrived there because, uh, look, um, you know, people who know Bob, he just... Loves what he does. I don't think I've ever seen anyone uh, more meticulous, even. And he was in his 90s. I think he turns 95 this year, Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Rogers. So, you know, bless his heart. And uh, he was, every time I saw him, I'd say, Bobby, how are you? He said, oh, Timmy, I I don't think I can do this much longer. And in the end, he he couldn't. And, uh, you know, I took over for him originally uh, in mornings and I did afternoons as well and uh, he made a point of when he came in uh, to do his show on Saturday of uh, coming in to say, you know, thank you, and and you're doing a great job. Incredibly supportive. Well, Cherie, um, I first met Cherie uh, back in the 70s when she was a young music director at 2SM. Now, I can't uh, remember the sequence of that, but when I got to 2SM in 75, uh, John Brennan, Again, the late and the great was the music director then before he became so successful at UE&GB. And and Cherie was around then, but she was the one uh, who made the phone call uh, to get me to come to Triple M and the one who made the phone call to get me to come to Today FM and to come to 2CH. She's always been a great supporter um, of me, and uh, I'm very appreciative of that. Now, again... I don't know of uh, anyone in the business more meticulous, more attention to detail, who cares literally about everything, every song that's played, every ad that's on, every promo that's on, uh, the way it's structured, uh, the way the whole thing is put to air. Uh, and she cares. I think if, if I could say one thing, and I could probably say many about Cherie, that she cares. Now, she really cares about our business, and uh, that's why she's been around as long as she has been.
0: Yeah, Cherie seemed to have the Midas touch wherever she went, but uh, she was also a pretty hard taskmaster too, wasn't she?
1: Oh, yeah, she's very hard on the team. If she doesn't like something, she'll soon tell you. Uh, but the team she put together, and, you know, unfortunately the team's broken up now. I mean, great uh, communicators and disc jockeys that, uh, you know, your audience has probably known and, and uh, listened to for a long time. Me, Trevor Sinclair, Chris Kearns, uh, you know, Dano. Um, that was the original team put together, and... Um, and she just had faith in everybody and uh, knew we, that we knew the music. And that's what she needs for a station like, well, her most recent one, which was 2CH. You know, we needed to know the music. We needed to understand it. We needed to communicate it to our listeners. Because, you know, as you know, mate, the, music, the listeners that love music can't be fooled. They love it. And if you don't know it, uh, they'll soon let you know too.
0: Finally, Tim, disc jockey, news anchor, talkback host, news presenter, where does your passion really lie?
1: You know, disc jockey, mate, I have to say, uh, first love and these last uh, approaching four years now. And, uh, you know, um, I have to say, two of the, the great privileges of my broadcasting career were A, being asked to come and fill in for Lorsi, uh when he was crook, which I did for a number of years before I got my own gigs at UE, and to be asked uh, to replace the great Bob Rogers when it got too much for him to, to do Monday to Friday. He still did do a Saturday night show. And we were great to still have him and to get his imprimatur to do it. And uh, for him to say that I was doing a great job has been a thrill. And uh, and I'm loving it. You know, uh, we put in a format with Sheree that included me being able to make comments on a few things with the listeners. And they seem to love it. I know they love the music and and I love playing it. So, you know, I'm sort of uh, back to the future as I approach uh, 50 years in the business. If I'm still on the air next February, it'll be 50 years.
0: More music. More music. to sm Okay, Tim, time now to ask a dozen or so questions that we ask all our guests here on Pilots of the Airwaves. First one is, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died?
1: Mate, I was on the way across the Harbour Bridge, away from Triple M. And it came straight back. Uh, I just was shaking my head in disbelief that this could possibly have happened. Um, And I just went back to the radio station, I think just about everybody did, just to see what we could do, if there's anything that we could contribute, anything that we could, you know, uh, just be there, I think, mate, was the thing to just quite, you know, understand it, wrap your head around the fact that somebody had shot John Lennon. I mean, how could that possibly be? I mean, that's uh, at the end of this year, that's 42 years ago, and I still remember it vividly.
0: Can you recall the last concert ticket you paid for?
1: Oh, my wife would love this if she was listening. Um, The last one I paid for, and I paid out the big bucks, was for the history of the Eagles tour at the winery in the Hunter Valley. And where was that? Hope Estate. And I'll tell you what it was. It was the full box and dice. I mean, uh, anyone who knows me knows how much I love the Eagles. It was the whole package. So you arrived, you know, drinks before lunch, a beautiful lunch. Then wandered down. I think we we're about four rows from the front. Uh, watched the the half first half of the Eagles. They took a break, came back, had some more drinks, went back for the end of the show. And my wife and I had one of the nicest afternoons we've ever had in our lives. There, I can't even tell you how much it was. It was just a fair few dollars, but worth every single cent.
0: Is there a concert act you regret never seeing?
1: Um, I regret never seeing. Well, he never came, uh, Jimi Hendrix. I would have loved to have seen Jimi Hendrix live. I saw Led Zeppelin in 1972. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I saw Paul McCartney in Wings in 76 and went backstage to have a chat to him, which uh, was an interview played on 2SM. Didn't see the Beatles. Mum wouldn't let me go. Uh, But the other act that I wish I'd seen, and he never came to Australia because I think the story went, uh, that because the concerts were great, I'm told, that he just didn't like to travel, was Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. But, uh, oh, mate, I saw Little Feet in Sydney, the Doobies, uh, the Eagles the first time, the Eagles at Hope Estate, the Eagles again. Uh, and I've seen so Paul Simon, the Graceland tour. Uh, many, many great... I'm hard to keep away from a concert if uh, it's somebody that I love. But uh, I think we all would have loved to have seen Hendrix live.
0: Tim, is there a word you had most trouble pronouncing on air?
1: <laughs> um well, you know, I nearly got caught, mate. I nearly got caught. And on Facebook, I um, I call myself Captain Cimudgeon, and I do worry about mangling of the language these days. Uh, but I nearly got caught with Conoundra when I was in Bathurst, and I saw it. And in those days, uh, I was doing nights when I first arrived, and I think we might have even done it in other shifts. We used to do a little rip and read bit of news uh, at 2BS uh, for, you know, 90 seconds or two minutes, and we got it out of the newspaper usually and uh, and wrote our own and i saw it and i just had a little thought in the back of my bear in mind i'm a kid from bondi what do i know and i'm a kid and i looked at it i said canna windra and uh my mate said um graham hasler who went on to become a, a news presenter and a very good one said no mate no 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 don't make that mistake you'll be in trouble it's canoundra so that one nearly that's exact but i'll tell you the one that um um the mistakes made. I must say, I, I pride myself on not getting too much wrong. I can't even say it the way people uh like George W. Bush used to say nuclear. What about that one? The people who can't say nuclear. There's so many. <laughs> and it's such an awful word, too.
0: <laughs> Ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders?
1: Yes, my uh, career nearly finished before it began. This is a famous story of mine. I. Uh, I was at 2BS and I'd only been there a couple of months, and I must have still been doing nights, uh, which is what I started out doing when I first got there. And uh, I, you had to in those days. There was like an old telephone dialer, and you had to turn Mudgy off because Ron, at those days, you were simulcasting uh, Mudgy and Bathurst at the same time. But uh, I kept going, and Mudgy had to be dialed off at a particular time. I think it might have been midnight. I think. Uh, But I forgot. And then uh, I went off the air in Bathurst as well and decided to have a little party in the studio with a couple of the local nurses. And we're having a lovely time until that wonderful Bob Opfold came tearing through the front door of 2BS. And remember those old uh, dressing gowns gowns that looked like a quilt with a cord round the middle? he came flying through, waving his arms, saying, no, 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 stop, 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 because I'm playing music and having a good time in the studio. And all of it was going to air, in Mudgie, Billy <laughs> <laughs> really stopped before it started.
0: No, I'm sure the good folk of Mudgie would have enjoyed every second of it, there, Tim. Hey, listen, Skyhooks or Sherbet?
1: Oh, now there's a story. At eighty-seven two GB, one of the funniest afternoons I spent uh, was with Shirley and Daryl, both in the studio at the same time, uh, we had a ball playing Sherbet and Skyhooks records. And uh, with apologies to Alfred, Benny, Bjorn, and Anya. I'd play a little bit of an ABBA record and then have a machine gun effect and shoot it down for a bit of fun. But they were, they were both tremendous blokes. Uh, We still got Daryl's sadly, we lost Shirley many years ago, but uh, they're in the studio together and there's a photo and I've got it at home of me uh, with my headphones on and Shirley and Daryl sort of doing a fake uh, arm wrestle. And uh, we had just a brilliant afternoon. But for me, Well, remember, mate, where I'm from, I'm a Bondi boy, New South Welshman, got to be Daryl and Sherbert. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Um, Well, I'm I'm prone to say the Beatles are the best band the world has ever seen, full stop, end of story, and always will be. I can't think of any band that will ever be as diverse as that. You know, you think about them from the clubs in Hamburg to the original songs in the early 60s to how they refined that in the studio after 66 with Sergeant Peppers and the White Album Abby Road, and even the shambolic period that was so beautifully portrayed in those uh, tapes, the tapes that put, are put together by, oh, God, uh, the Get Back tapes, just wonderful. My, I was enthralled by that. So when you think about all of that, there can't be a better band, full stop, than them. Having said that, uh, when you say the best rock and roll band in the world, got to be the Rolling Stones, no question.
0: Tim, is there a most treasured piece of memorabilia that you hold on to from those good old radio days? I've got um, and it's signed but well,
1: it's not early radio days. It's, uh, what, 77, 78. Uh, and Willie Nelson came on tour to promote. Remember that Stardust album? Just a brilliant album of his. Mm-hmm. And a uh, quick story about that. We, uh, we had a press conference and a very young journo uh, said to Willie, uh, and it, that was huge, that album. Uh, well, Mr. Nelson, what's it like to be an overnight success? And uh, Willie, in his lovely Texan drawl, said, well, ma'am, I'd like to think it's been a little longer than that. But I've got a a beautiful signed photo of Willie, and on the bottom it says, thanks for your support, Willie Nelson. And I've also got um, a hand-drawn sketch that Dave Gilmore did, the great Pink Floyd guitarist, at the Osrock Café. And uh, he signed it on the bottom. And uh, that was after one of the tours. And that was in the 80s uh, when Floyd came to Australia. And uh, that's a treasured possession as well. But I did have a, a taken it to the streets Doobie Brothers T-shirt. And I kept it for, I don't know, best part of 20 years. But eventually it fell apart. <laughs> so, yeah, got some lovely stuff.
0: Can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air?
1: Oh, without a doubt, the tsunami uh, in uh, in Indonesia, when I would literally first started to fill in for Ray at Two GB in 2004, and uh, just a remarkable couple of weeks on the air for the for the news value of it, and uh, we crossed here, there, and everywhere. People were so incredibly generous and giving. The things they did—they uh, set up charity events and raised money and food and blankets—and uh, all of the journo's involved at GB. I mean, that's when radio mate is at its absolute best when you've got and it's a tragic event uh, to talk about but when you've got something like that to cover and you can impart all the information you need to impart that's when radio as is at its absolute best
0: tim has there been a moment when someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck
1: oh so, <laughs> starstruck into the studio um Well, you know, I did a lot of those interviews outside of the studio, but I have to say, and this is going to sound odd, but only because I knew the history of her uh, with George Harrison and with Eric Clapton. The day I interviewed Patti Boyd, Layla walked into the studio at 2UE, still looked absolutely lovely. And And she'd written a book and she was very forthcoming about the whole situation she had of going out with George, uh, in the early days, marrying George, uh, the affair with Clapton, and how George and Eric remained uh, with a little bit of angst initially. Very good friends, as you know, all the way through their lives until we lost George. But she was charming. She was fascinating. She was lovely. Absolutely was Layla. And, uh, yeah, when she walked in the door,
0: very starstruck indeed. Best words of advice from a program manager?
1: Uh, two. Two. Uh, from John Burnley, uh, who, uh, but, you know, there's a quick story. Uh, I used to hang around 2SM, even when I was in advertising, and look through the window, and uh, I remember Burnley on air. Uh, he was doing afternoons at the time, and he became the program director, and he was the one who sent out a demo tape for me uh, and for Graham Hassler. Uh, he produced it, and he sent it out, and I got an answer back from 2BS quite quickly. Uh, in 1973, and and off I dashed, got out of advertising and went there. And all Burnley said to me was, just be yourself, mate. He said, don't put anything on, just don't try and bung it on, just be yourself. He said, uh, you've been blessed with a great voice anyway. Uh, And if you just, you know, be yourself, uh, be real, uh, that's all that's ever going to matter. And uh, I like to think I've, I've done that. And Cherie, if she ever imparted any advice, it was to, you know, keep it brief uh by all means have something to say but don't be long-winded about saying it and uh, i think i've developed that uh with uh, what i've been doing at ch for the last three years and you know it's it's play the music absolutely but if you've got something to say you know you can say it in a minute you don't have to say it in you know minute and a half or two minutes you can say it in 50 seconds uh so the brevity of words and if there's any advice you could impart to young broadcasters it'd be that too you know don't be long-winded
0: Hey, finally, Tim, two albums that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage
1: years. Soundtrack of my teenage years will have to be the first album I actually bought with my own money, which was with the Beatles, the one with the black cover. And, look, I don't know that I could possibly think of a better album, really, than Abbey Road. Uh, That second side of Abbey Road is one of it's just musical genius, you know, and they were going through an incredibly tough time. At the time. you wouldn't know it uh, from the music side to of Abbey Road is just so superb. And I listen to it every chance I get, uh, if I could throw in another one, it'd be get your yard out. The stones live at Madison square garden in 69. But uh, the first Beatles album I bought and another one I can throw in is rubber soul. And, you know, I could almost put that second to Abbey Road. You know, people say, uh, Sergeant Pepper's was the best album ever made, and the White Album after that. and Sergeant Pepper's was great, but uh, Rubber Soul for me was the album where they really became very fine musicians, and over the next four years, just honed that craft. As we said before, I, it's impossible for me to imagine there will ever be a better band than the Beatles
0: ever. Yeah, love that Beetle bias. Hey Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. As I said, a diverse career, and of course a successful one, but the story is far from finished with the great work that you're currently doing on 2CH. Almost 50 years in the business. Thanks for being part of Pilots. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. It's
1: been fun. Thank you very much.
0: Tim Webster on Pilots of the Airwaves. (laughs)